You are listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast from Freedom Fellowship Church in Tontytown, Arkansas. Our mission is to love God, love others, and serve both. And now let's listen in to this week's sermon. What I've done today is I've, graduates, I've, I've aimed what I've written today at you as graduates, but I've tried to craft it in such a way that the message reaches farther than that because I think it has application beyond us. I titled this one, and it's on the U version as well, but I entitled this Paul and Me because we're going to be talking about the conversion of Paul. And the reason I said Paul and Me is because, you know, we may not line up exactly with him, but like Paul did, we all have decisions to make in life. And so we're going to see kind of the process that he went through, very dramatic process, but it should also just challenge us, too, about where we are in our life and, and what it's going to be. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to start, but I'm going to try to set it up for you as far as the, the people that are involved, the setting that's involved. And this is going to start in the ninth, chap, ninth chapter of Acts in the first verse, if you want to catch up with me. Acts 9, pick it up in verse 1. So I'm going to tick off a few of the characters here just to give you a little bit of background. So obviously the key guy in this thing is Saul, and Saul is a Hebrew name. Now you're going to hear him called Saul and Paul, as Justin said last week. You're going to hear him, you're going to hear him call Saul and Paul. He, Saul was the Hebrew name. You can go back even and think about the king Saul some generations before him. And then Paul became that kind of Romanized Greek word that he was often called. But it's the same guy as we talk about Saul today. Jesus is a figure in this, as he should be in every, in every scripture. But Jesus is a figure in this, and, and this is after Jesus' arrest, his death, the being put in the tomb, the resurrection, and after the 40 days that he was seen here on earth among the people and before he was taken up. There's another guy named Ananias, and Ananias was a disciple. Well, a disciple basically, and we're not talking about apostles, we're talking about disciples, even though the apostles, by definition, were also disciples. But a disciple really is a follower, or you may think about him as a learner. So Ananias was, a, was what we would call a Christian guy already at this time. And then there's Judas, okay? Not this Iscariot, not the one with the bad reputation, but this is another Judas that happened to live in the city of Damascus. And then we, the one of the, then we have characters that are just the disciples it talks about. Again, it's the learners, the believers. And then we have the Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Gentiles are anybody that's not a Jew. So if you're not Jewish by heritage, then that makes you a Gentile. So you see, those are the primary cast members that we're going to talk about today as we walk through these verses. Here, let me give you just a few terms now, too, just for definition. It's going to talk about, in the scripture we're getting ready to read, it's going to talk about letters. So what was very common back then, you know, the internet yet, uh, Al Gore hadn't invented that. And so the, as, as back in those days, they had to take a letter, and they would take that letter of introduction with them when they went to some other place. Well, it wasn't just a letter of introduction for Paul to take to the uh, Jewish leaders of those communities, but it was also one that gave him the authority. He, he had the authority to recommend or arrest people and or to help transport them back to Jerusalem to be prosecuted for their offenses. So Paul obviously saw himself as a truth teller. He saw himself as being this righteous man, and so he was able to, to say, I know what's right. Now, 
I'm going to tell you that if, if you don't have to, unless you're living in a cave today, we have all, people all around us that believe that they're truth tellers. They believe it fervently. They, they think that they have this position on whatever it is out there, exclude Christianity at this stage, but whether it may be political, social, whatever, but we know there are people that have this position just as Paul did, and he felt like that he was justified in what he was doing. So then there's this other group called the way. Now, the way, all that really was, that was the precursor to the term that became Christians. And really the reason they were called the way is because people realized that for them it wasn't just a case of doctrine or something that they believed or said they were attached to by their ancestry, but they were called the way because these people really, it was a way of life. That's why they called them the way. Because they didn't just talk about it, they acted it out. They lived that way. It was their way, their way of life. And then the times when this setting occurs, it's, it's after the resurrection of Christ, as we're talking about. And what happened is the Christians were being persecuted. They had scattered to a lot of different places and established churches. Now, you know, we're free to just come walk in, go to lunch, talk about church, have stickers on their windows like I do that say Freedom Fellowship. We're free to do those things. But in those days... You know, these people were operating on what you call the down low, right? Because they really didn't want people to know who they were other than the way they tried to communicate between each other. But people like Saul, what they did is they'd actively seek them out. And, and then, you know, what happened is they, they'd say, okay, you have a belief in a Messiah. Well, the Messiah hadn't come yet. I'm Jewish. That hasn't happened yet. That was all a lie. And, they, and so people like Saul would go seek them out of these places. Well, Damascus was a key location for that. So if you can think about this place that in the verses here in just a moment that Paul was going to, it was about a 130-mile walk. So if you were really hooking it, it was about six days. I don't know how long, how long it would be if you were lucky enough to have a donkey, but it wouldn't have been a great ride. But, it, but you had to be really committed to decide, I'm going to walk 130 miles because I believe so much in what I believe in that I'm going to go up there because I've heard rumors that there's these pockets of Christians and we're going to stamp them out. Now, he was no doubt committed to his task. But see, long before that, we know that one of the things he did, Scripture tells us, is this isn't like a new thing for him. It tells us that when Stephen was stoned to death for his faith, and people found out who he was, and, and they asked him, well, you deny it. He said, well, no, I'm not going to deny it. I'm a follower of Christ. And it, it tells us that what happened is that Saul, Paul, held the cloaks so the guys could get their arms free so they could stone him to death. So we know he was a part of that. So he was an ardent guy in pursuit of these people. Now, when we talk about persecution today, we think about, oh, well, I get bullied at school. Well, that's true. It happens. It's a bad thing. We think about bullying. We talk about somebody maybe that calls us names or somebody that stands in front of the building and, and, they, and maybe they protest about something. But I can tell you that this, this type of persecution they're talking about was much different. It was a case where, you know, they were beaten, they were tortured, they were killed, and I, I, I won't even go into the graphic ways they were killed, but I can tell you it wasn't pretty. And it was a, a type that they were asking, if you're in support of the Messiah, then you have a price to pay. And I'm telling you, folks, that was a commitment. So join me now as we pick it up. Chapter 9, verse 1, you've got the setting. We know what's going to happen. We're going to move quickly through these verses. So this is what it says, chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and he asked, for, he asked him for letters. We talked about letters. Letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that, he could be, so that if, any, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on the journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell on the ground and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul's interesting answer, he said, with a question mark, he said, Who are you, Lord? So he's understanding that this, this voice I'm hearing, is <laughs> this is something unique here. And so he knew that it had to be some divine power. Who are you, Lord? And the response he gets is, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard a sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind. I'm assuming from this point that Jesus, after that conversation, probably had his attention. So we see Saul, this very passionate man, and he's passionate about his mission. He's on the way. He's going to go there, and what he's going to do is he's going to make arrest, and there's going to be a lot of very not nice things going to happen to these people that are arrested. He was an educated man, and his task was to bring these people to justice. Now, what was he bringing them to justice for? He was bringing them to justice because... They didn't line up with the Jewish law and the, and the Jewish talking points that were there, and they saw them to be heretics. You know, if we let these people go, they're just going to destroy our religion. What's going to happen to us? You know, this, you know, this religion to us is everything, these Pharisees thought. But see, Paul felt that the God of the Jewish people required him to do this cleansing thing. And again, we've seen in history any number of times when people thought that that was their goal in life. So enters the next character as we get into verse 10. It says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. He was a believer. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Obviously, he understood again in this vision that this wasn't just a, a crazy dream, but in fact, it was a, a divinely inspired vision. The Lord told him, he said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and asked for a man from Tarsus, which was where Paul, that was Paul's birthplace. And his name is Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all of the harm that he has done to the holy people in Jerusalem. And when he's talking about the holy people, he's talking about the other people that were part of the way and he said he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on his name now, I don't know about you but the Lord has come to him and he said here's what I want you to do and Ananias said you know this is out of my comfort zone I don't know if you every once in a while if, the, if you get tapped on the shoulder by the Holy Spirit or maybe it's even something more bold than that and you think that you're supposed to do something but you say, well, that's really, that's out of my comfort zone. Well, I'm sure it was out of Ananias' comfort zone too. But the reality, if you think about his situation, he wasn't just going because he was uncomfortable going there. Or maybe, you know, maybe I'm really not into this laying on a hands thing. And, you know, maybe I go there and I'm embarrassed because he doesn't have his sight reported. Whatever those things are. But the reality is he knew 
that when he went there, he was exposing himself. And then here's, here is this guy who has a reputation of just destroying people's lives, even having them put to death. And you want me, Ananias, you want me to go down to, and put my, not only me, but my family's lives at risk to go pray for this guy. How crazy is that? But he knew what he had to do because he understood it was the Lord that was talking to him. And in verse 15, it goes on and says, But the Lord said this to Ananias. He said, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, and their kings and to the people of Israel. He said, I will show him how much that he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scale fell off of Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God. I want you to remember that phrase because here he is he's a new he, you know he's a new convert right but what the scripture says you know they he's he's a, immediately he's filled with the holy spirit he regains his sight he's baptized and it says at once he began to preach now that to me that's that's i want you to hang on to that thought because we're going to come back to it in a minute now I'm just going to kind of walk you quickly through these next 10 or so verses. But this is what happens. Is he, he began to preach, and so what he started to do, he began to preach powerfully. It wasn't a mamby-pamby thing. He, he was powerful in what he was doing. And it says that he went to the different synagogues and, and talked about the Son of God. Now think about what he was doing. Here's a, a guy from the way, okay? They're operating on the down low, but he starts going to the synagogues. He's, he's, he's going to go talk to the Jewish population. And say, well, this guy that was put to death, I'm going to give you evidence. I'm going to prove to you that he truly was the son of God. And then after many days of doing that, a conspiracy arises. And he's, and he's about to be killed. So what they do is they, the, the other believers, they gather him up. They wait till night. They let him down through a hole in the wall and in a basket. And he escapes. So then he shows up in Jerusalem. Remember about 130 miles, and he makes his way to Jerusalem. Well, he gets there, and guess what? Everybody there, he's, he, you know, he's kind of being introducing himself, and he's talking boldly. And they're saying, okay, well, you know, the believers are saying, and the, and the apostles too, they're saying, okay, well, we're a little bit nervous about this. <laughs> I mean, anybody can say it, but we go back and we look at your life before what happened. And, you know, some of us have been there, right? Some of us go back and, and people look at our life before and they say, well, I knew you back when this was who you were, but now you're saying that this is who you are. And that's the same thing that they were understanding. They were saying, you know, I don't know if we buy this, but lo and behold, a guy named Barnabas, called an encourager, the Barnabas stepped in, and he was a well-trusted guy in that Christian community. Well, he stepped in and he said, I'm going to vouch for him because let me tell you what he did. He said he, he took him through the deal he, that his sight was restored. He went in and started preaching. We had to take him out of there. But believe me, this guy is a legit convert. So he stayed in Jerusalem, and then lo and behold, a little time passes. Guess what? 
They're going to, the Jewish population, they've decided to plot and kill him again. So he has to escape again. So the believers help him get out of there. Life's not easy for him. It's, you know, sometimes in conversion, when we're kind of starting things again and we're trying to get a fresh start, we kind of go, oh, this is maybe a little tougher than I thought. I, you know, I've got new friends. I have my old friends that talk bad about me. And, you know, it's just a little, this is just different than what I expected. But it says then after he went on to back to Tarsus, his birthplace, that there was a time that went on where they enjoyed a time of peace and the, in, and the body of Christ, the, the numbers increased. Now, I'm going to try to bring these verses back and I'm going to wrap them up. I want you graduates to pay attention here if you've been snoozing on me. But I want you to, to think about what has gone on here. See, Paul, we've already established, he's a zealous, very passionate guy. You know, he was a guy that, that was going to hunt down Jews and he was going to prosecute them for what they were doing. He was all in. There was no question about where he was at. So see, a person can be passionate for the wrong things. And you can think about that. You probably know some people maybe in your life. They're really passionate about what they believe. But, you know, when you... And, you know, how do you know that? I mean, you ask yourself, well, how do I know if it's the wrong thing or not? Well, I, I give you the first clue is this. Does it line up with God's word? That's where you go first. You know, does it line up with God's word? But see, we can see people, they can be very passionate, but it doesn't mean they're right. And Paul was passionate, but we can be passionate about the wrong things. Or a person can be passionate about the right things. Think about what it is, perhaps, students and others... Think about what are you passionate about in your life? What, what, do you, what are you passionate about? You know, Paul had passion, misplaced at first, but later on the right track. But think about what you personally, what are you passionate about? Is there, is there passion in your life? Are you, are you passionate for the Lord, for your work? Whatever it is, but think about what it is that you're passionate about. See, in chapter 9, in John it talks about Jesus, and he'd had an encounter with a blind beggar. Now, this, this young man had been blind since birth. Well, you understand that the Jewish community absolutely didn't want to hear anything about Jesus healed this guy. Okay, this kid's, you know, he's probably, I don't know what he is. Let's say he's 20 years old. Let's pick a number. But let's say he's 20 years old, and he's been blind forever. Everybody around him knew he's blind. They saw him in the marketplace. They saw him, you know, whether he was shaking a cup or I don't know what he did, but... But he was a beggar. It was obvious who he was. And so the Pharisees then absolutely didn't want credit to go to Jesus. So they came to his parents and they asked his parents, they said, hey, you know, you, you, you're talking about this Jesus guy and that he healed your son. But, you know, we don't really believe that. Give us some evidence of that. So finally they come back and they ask again persistently the second time. And then the young man had a great response. He said, he said, I don't know about whether I was a sinner or not, because sometimes a lot of people believe, well, you're a sinner. That's why that bad thing happened to you. He, and they were kind of saying, well, the reason you were blind is because you had sin. That's what we believe as a Jewish community. But what he was talking about, he says, he said, I don't know if I was blind because I sinned. But he said, this is what I know. He said, I was blind, but now I see. Pretty simple. He said, this I know. You can complicate things. You can complicate 
all your life. You can try to settle intellectually about where your faith is and, well, maybe I believe and maybe I don't believe. You'll have college professors that will try to convince you that maybe for the right reasons to test your faith, but sometimes they really want to move you out of your faith. But whatever it is, you're going to be in a situation where you'll have to come back to some simple solution about trust and about faith. And that's where this young beggar was. He said, he said I don't know about the sin part or anything, but this is what I know. I was blind, but now I see. Now, graduates, you're going to be at a crossroads in your life. You're going to have a lot of choices, a lot of decisions to make. You're going to make decisions about family. You know, married, not married, maybe, maybe at some point, maybe it's going to be about children. You're going to think about your a job, or you're going to think about your profession. Where are you going to invest your life? What is it you're going to do? Maybe the future of schooling, if you're going to go on to, to, to additional schooling. You're going to make a decision about the friends you pick and how that works out. You're going, to, you're going to decide which group that you're going to run with. You're going to make decisions about habits, and some of them will be good habits. That's the ones we hope you make. And some of them will be... So not so good habits. You're going to make decisions about the condition of your character. About, am I willing to compromise the truth? Am I willing to compromise the truth so I can get ahead? Do I want to be part of the group because I don't want kids to make fun of me or other people or students to make fun of me? Am I willing to stand up for my character? But see, for the most part... What will shape your decision, in my belief, and all of you, all of you students, all of you graduates, you have, you have some spiritual light in your life. There may be different degrees of how much that is, but, you, but you're not blind to the truth, the truth of Christ. And so what you're going to do is you're going to make a decision, and a decision is very simple. You're either going to allow Christ to be the center of your life, you're, and you're going to allow Christ to be in control of your life, or you're not. But you've been exposed spiritually. So you kind of know what the truth is, but you still have to make that choice about what you're going to do. And, you know, for the others listening that aren't graduates, you know, we have, we've all graduated from something. But the reality for us is we have the same decision we make every day. Every day when we roll out of bed, we have a decision is Christ going to be in control of my life? Is he going to be in the center of my life? Am I going to follow him? Those are decisions that we have to make daily. Because graduates, listen to me. The world will tempt you to fall in love with many different things. Many different things. And they look sweet. They look, they look tempting. They look like an opportunity. But the world will tempt you to follow, fall in love with many different things. Some of them will be good things, but some of them won't be good things. They'll lead you down a bad path if you decide you want to go that way. You know, the counsel I would give you, and I think the mature Christian sitting in this room, the counsel that we would give you is that you first fall in love with Jesus. Now, you might think that's a trite statement, but I can tell you it is not a trite statement because if your first decision is to fall in love with Jesus, then believe me, the rest of the decisions you make, the other priorities that you establish in your life, you'll be amazed how much that they come into line. Later in life, if you make those decisions based on the Christian values and your belief in Christ, later on in life, even though it seems like it's a kind of a zigzaggy thing that you're on, you'll look back and say, wow, 
it's amazing how all that happened, but still God is moving me along this path because he's, he's, he's allowed us to examine what our priorities are. See, Saul was passionate. He had zeal. I mean, you know, you just think about it. I mean, think about after he made his conversion. Believe me, life was not easy. You know, as Christians, sometimes we think, well, you know, as soon as I'm saved, hey, it's just going to be wonderful. But the reality is we're still going to have challenges, and you'll have challenges. But he was, he was really a, <laughs> he was something to behold because he had great passion for the wrong things. But thank the Lord, he replaced it with great passions and zeal for the right things. You remember when we said earlier that, that at once he began to preach, okay? So whether it's those of you just listening today or whether you're a graduate today, I want you to remember that line. But at once he began to preach. Now, if in fact you were to examine that, he was an educated man, probably multilingual, he knew the Jewish law forward and backward. He'd been trained. But the reality is how many of us would, I, I can tell you if you had somebody walk in here and they came up to Eric and they say, well, you know, I've uh, been out living another life. But boy, the Lord has got a hold of me and I'd love for you to put me on the pulpit next Sunday, by the way, Eric. How about it? You know, boy, we'd have to have a pretty big prayer meeting to be able to do that. But here's this guy. He, he just makes this 180 and all of a sudden, and, and it isn't easy because he has to convince people. But at once it said he didn't, go to, he, he didn't go to like Christian training or Christian Bible college. But the Lord got a hold of him. And just like the blind beggar, he said, this I know. I once was blind, but now I see. And the reality for you is we're all called to do the same thing. I'm not saying that, that, that you're called to preach up here on this platform. Some of you may be. But the reality is every single one of us has a duty to testify, which is exactly what Paul was doing. Paul and me, we have a duty to testify. And so once you'll, you may say, well, I, I, don't, I don't really have a lot of biblical, I don't have enough biblical background. What if they ask me a hard question? Well, see, the reality is what you're testifying to is you're testifying to what Christ has done in your life and where you're at and your relationship with the Savior and it's how it's changed you. So be thinking about that, that just like he was at once began to preach, it is every one of our responsibility to talk to people about the saving grace of the Lord and what he's done in our life. Each of you, like Paul, with others, you have your relationship with Jesus and you can talk about what he's done in your life. So then you end up with that question, who will I serve? That seemed like a pretty simple question because really you got two answers. Who will I serve? Will I serve the world or will I serve the Lord? Those are it's just that. You don't get to, you know, but Revelation says, okay, let's give you a third choice, okay? Serve the world, you want to serve the Lord, or do you just want to be lukewarm? Revelation says this, it says, if you want to choose the middle route, if you want to be lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth, just like you would a, a, a drink of nasty warm liquid. He said, I'll spew you out of my mouth. He said, I want you to make a choice. Are you going to serve the world or are you going to serve the Lord? And that's what I hope because each one of you young people, you're headed to your next life adventure. You know, whether it's in aeronautics or 
learning how to do technical things about sonograms or whatever those things are, but you're headed to your next adventure. And what I want you to do is just think about when you leave here, who will I serve? Who will I serve? Will I serve the world or will I serve the Lord? Because for each one of us, we have a responsibility. And the responsibility as you get older and you develop your own families and your own peer groups is to make sure that in fact, because scripture tells us, he said that, that, that bad, what is it, bad characters, corrupt good, good judgment or something like that? Who helps me? Proverbs. Anyway, it's saying if you hang out on the wrong side, it's going to influence who we are. So you have to make good choices about how we do that and about who you pick as a spouse. You know, Gage has made a, a great pick here, I think. Congratulations to you guys. But, you know, he's, he, he, you know what was important to him was to be equally yoked. And I challenge all you young people to think, too, about being equally yoked as you come together as a couple and look at those years ahead of you. Bow your heads with me as we get ready for the praise team to come and close us out. Father, we, we truly thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for these graduates. Lord, we, uh, we are so blessed. When I look at the crop of young people that were up here in front of you, I'm so impressed with them. Not just the fact of how they did in school or a GPA or how many cords or ribbons they had around their neck. I'm impressed with them by their character, by their beliefs, how they're conducting their life, by the choices they made, Lord. And I pray that we just put a hedge of protection around them and that they realize that it is just that simple. I have a choice. I'll either serve the world or I'll serve the Lord. And I pray, Lord, that what they do is they'll make the decision that they're going to pick the latter, and that's to serve you with all their heart, all their life. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast. We are located at 990 West Henry de Tonti Boulevard in Tontytown, Arkansas. You can check us out on the web at freedomfellowship.com or you can find us on social media by searching Freedom Fellowship NWA. We hope you have a great week and that you live out the mission of the church, which is to love God, love others, and serve both.